Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuckinistas, what the fuck tuckians, what the fucknicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Welcome to the show. Today on the show, Jay Maskus drops by. Literally, he just wanted to come by. But I, I mean, to me, that is a, an honor and uh, it makes me feel good. He didn't have anything to really promote. He just wanted to chat play a couple songs so look forward to that coming up me and jay mascus dinosaur jr if you don't uh if you're like who the fuck is jay mascus oh also on the show danny fields i tried to wrangle about 50 years of rock history into a conversation with danny who's not always following a straight line but uh he is like he's like punk rock rock zelig man he was he was there at the juncture of some of the most important turning points of modern rock fucking music danny fields and i was happy he was out here i wrote his mind i you know i held on and we uh we we got somewhere got a lot of places got an interesting uh, email today eureka i'm manic hi mark 40 something long island artist type living in socal I enjoy your podcast for your relatable guests and the memories of the tri-state area wtf is like an east coast slice of pizza Thank you. Nice thin crust. I recently listened to the AJ Mendez Brooks interview and had a eureka moment. Holy shit, I'm bipolar. Everything completely made sense to me. Like the scene when Ed Norton found out he was also Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Recollections of manic episodes raced through my mind. Like this one time I was rifling through my trunk for an ice scraper during a New York blizzard. And four days later, my car is overheating in California. No job, no plan, and no resolve for the mania. I used to refer to these moments as firecrackers. They are fun to play with, slightly dangerous, bright, loud, then go away. Afterward, the smoke it's a mess, it smells, and always costs money. I'm going to take a pause and look at myself. I'll let you know how things go. Keep it up. You're changing lives. Signed, Tyler Durden. Anyway, let me tell you this story. Look, I'm no, like, I don't see myself as a celebrity. You know, I'm a, a, a mid-level guy who works at home sometimes does some on-camera stuff also gets out on stage a lot but you know i'm just a working stiff in the uh, the big business of show you dig whatever experience i've had here in the garage with with 
very famous, brilliant, not so brilliant and famous people that have come through here. Once they sit down after about 10 minutes, I can kind of, you know, manage myself, you know, manage uh, whatever fanness I, I might have, fandom, or just, like, you know, people become people very quickly, you know, and it just, and that, and I know that, I know that, but here, here's what happened. It was, uh, it was, you know, it was pretty exciting. I guess, I don't know if it was exciting, it was weird, because I don't live the life. I'm not living the life. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know that, but I'm not living the life, okay? Like, I here's what I assume. I assume people who are living the life don't ever have to unplug things to plug other things in. And that, it's a weird thought I always have when I'm trying to plug in my burr grinder and also my blender. Can't do it. Got to unplug one to plug in the other. And I always think at that moment, you know, people who are living the life, they got plenty of plugs and everything's in its own place and it all works together and it's just a beautiful, clean and easy move through the world for the people that are living the life. Plenty of plugs. Anyway, I go to the U2 concert. Now, I don't go to many concerts, you know that, but I got offered uh, some tickets to go see U2 here at the Rose Bowl. Dan Cook over at Gimme Gimme Records was actually the best guy to go with. Dan and I went... And at the last minute, uh, the publicist sent me a parking pass. So it was like, all right, now, now I'm living the life. We are just cruising down, you know, through cop checkpoints directly into the parking lot. No other cars. There's a special lane for people living the life. And we're in it. Dan and I are living the life, parking at the Rose Bowl to see you too. So we go in, we get our seats. They're nice seats. They're not on the field, which is all standing. They're seated and they're like stage right. And we can see the big screens. We can see everything. It's nice out. It's beautiful. You know, got a lemonade, sitting around, talking about music. And we're waiting. And then the Luminaires come on. It's okay. You know, I like them. It's a country band. It seems like it to me. I don't know what people are calling them, but it seemed like pretty solid kind of folk country stuff. Enjoyed it. About midway through the Luminaires, Luminaire, Luminaires, I get a text from the publicity people. They're like, hey, we're going to come down and give you a pass to the Desert Lounge. I'm like, all right, I don't know what that is. So uh, Steve from the from the publicity place, he comes over, gives me a Desert Lounge pass. And, and, and you know, we were pretty comfortable there having a lemonade, talking music in the beautiful night, waiting for uh, you two, listening to the Luminaires. But, you know, we go with Steve to the Desert Lounge. Now, the Desert Lounge is just a big tent with a bunch of people in it. And I don't know what we're doing there. It's like, you know, it's it's not like the special, special room. It's just a room with people who are affiliated or paid some money or family, friends, whatever, hanging out in a big bar setting in a tent that's air conditioned, which was nice. Uh, uh, they Someone told me they just saw, you know, Scott Ackerman and Adam Scott. And I'm like, I know those guys. Where are they? I don't know where they are. They're not here anymore. I said, well, let's just go out back out, man. I was in the zone. I was sitting in an arena. I was waiting for um, the band. I was like in the zone. I liked it outside. I don't want. I don't know who these people are. It's like a fucking nightclub. I go tell Steve like, thanks for the desert lounge pass, and uh, we're gonna go back out to the arena. And he's like, well, don't you want to? Don't you want to meet the meet you too? And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. I mean, they're gonna do a little meet and greet. I think in about 15 minutes. I mean, Bono's not because he's you know taking care of his voice, but I think the other guys are. I'm like, I don't. I don't know what 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 for. Am I? I can't interview him here. I don't know. And, and he looked at me weird, and I'm like, oh, what am I, I'm an idiot. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, I want to, I want to, I don't, I can do that. I, I, I don't have to go sit out there in the arena. 
And then we walk through this little tunnel area, backstagey looking, you know, locker room kind of into a room that's hot. All I know is what we were just in an air conditioned room and now we're walked into a room full of people and it's hot as fuck, like a sauna hot. And I'm like, what is this? And all of a sudden my eyes just start looking around and I, like, I do a little like 180 look and I'm like, that's Sean Penn on the couch. Sean Penn on the couch. Sean Penn's just sitting there talking to people. Now, look, I don't care how many people I've had in here or what you think of anybody. You know, when I see movie stars, I act like a person who's seeing a movie star. And I'm like, well, I don't tell my face to do that because I'm a professional. But inside, I'm like, it's fucking Sean Penn. Look at him. Look at at his face. It's Sean Penn's face. He's like a, a, you know, a little Sean Penn's old face with his mustache. And and like, and then I start scanning around. I'm like, what the fuck is happening in here? There's, uh, there's Julia Roberts. What is going on in here? And then I see Ackerman and Adam Scott. And I'm like, okay, I know those guys. So I go over there. I'm like, what's up? Hey, we're chit-chatting around. And then I start looking around. I'm like, holy fuck. Is it Josh Brolin? Is that Josh Brolin? And Jesus Christ, what is this place? So then I'm like, holy shit, there's Sasha Baron Cohen. So I know him because he was on the show. So I start talking to Sasha Baron Cohen. Then Jimmy Kimmel comes over. We're talking about his kid who's doing all right. And then Patricia Arquette, who's been on the show, she says hi. And it's like, oh, my God, this is it. This is a big time celebrity holding pen. And I'm just always surprised. Like, I could not stop looking at the side of Josh Brolin's head because I think he's a great actor. And and my brain is sort of like, he's just a dude. I'm like, yeah, but God damn it. He was good. No country for old men. Come on. Come on. Hail Caesar, please. Whatever. I have a natural fan reaction to movie stars and actors that I like. And I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it. I'm doing okay with the fight. I'm talking. It was nice to talk to people that I knew in here who who know me, and that was fun to be. But I'm not that level. I'm not living the life. I'm, you know, I'm really, uh, 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 on some level, just a guy who works out of his house. <laughs> and I was excited. And Dan had never been, he was like, you know, he was, hi- he was hiding his shit better than me, just acting normal around these highly celebritized people. But at some point, me and Dan pull away and it happened it just it just happened you know i'm scanning the room not really scanning it because i've already taken it in and then the edge comes out and then i'm like uh there's the edge maybe i should go say hi oh he's talking to matt damon i don't know matt damon i'm not just gonna walk up and go hey man what's going on mark Marin, excuse me matt i don't know him i know he's just a person they're all just people but i don't know him so i didn't meet the edge but anyway so dan and i are getting i'm like I've had, i can't take anymore i met hal wilner that was actually very exciting the music producer, but it, it, like right before we were about to leave the the room because it was too hot, and I just wanted to go sit out in the arena and wait for the fucking band. <laughs> it was where it's nice and comfortable, have a lemonade, and uh, like I'm just about we're about to walk out, and we're I, I, I look towards the door, and there's a man surrounded by people, few people, and that's when it, I just broke, and I just looked at Dan, I pointed across the room, and I said Quincy Jones about that loud. Quincy Jones. No one it didn't no one turned or looked or heard me, but that was it. That's what tipped it. Quincy Jones. So then we left the celebrity holding pen and we went back to the seats. And sure enough, like about 15 minutes after we went back to the seats, they led every occupant of the celebrity holding pen into the stands where they were magically just people at a show. And Quincy Jones sat just down to the right where we were sitting. And Bono gave him a shout out during the show, which I thought was beautiful. And of course, it was so funny because these were good seats, obviously. But right behind us, there was this couple that were just, I think they were fucking tripping, man. I mean, full on tripping balls. 
And they were right behind me, and they, you know, they're playing the whole Joshua Tree, and the band sounds fucking great, and they're focused. And, they, and I'd forgotten what a tremendous fucking record that is, what a huge fucking record that is, just shaking me at the foundation of my soul. Beautiful. But there was this couple behind us. They were dancing so much that the people around them had to move aside, and they were the girl was just screaming out of context. So it's like, yeah! But really obnoxious, horrible scream. Yeah! I don't know why. And the guy was singing along with Bono and then doing call and response with him and nobody else was. But they, you know, they were just like sweaty and tripping balls and annoying. But I had that moment where I'm like, first it was like, you know, why we got what just just my luck. I got to be in front of these two people. But then it was sort of like, you know, that's what music does, man. That's what music does. That guy's singing along with Bono in the same space, and it's probably the greatest day, one of the best days he's having. She's going crazy. I turned around once or twice. She was crying. And I'm like, they're not annoying. They're doing what they should be doing. They're ecstatic. They're ecstatic at a rock and roll show. What more can you ask for? So, look, Jay Maskus just wanted to come by. So I said, sure, Jay, come by. And he came by. And he left his capo. He left his capo here. He took my tuner and left his capo. So I emailed him and I said, uh, Jay, um, I think uh, we swapped my tuner for your capo. And then Jay wrote back, okay, you cool with it or should I mail it back? Uh, Good seeing you. And I said, cool with me. If it's cool with you, just wanted to make sure you knew before you had to play a gig. Uh, I needed a capo. And then he said, cool, find your key. Isn't that the whole thing? Find your key. This is me and Jay Maskus. He has uh, the last Dinosaur Jr. album was a while ago. You can get any Dinosaur Jr. album. Give a glimpse of what you're not was released last year, but he just wanted to hang out. So this is... Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun no pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class it's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author kimberly ford everything from cormac mccarthy to madame bovary from classics like frankenstein to modern hits like lessons in chemistry i love ireland but i missed the boat on james joyce the fox page has a three-part series on dubliners and that's a pretty great starting point want to get the most out of what you read the fox page Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Me and Jay. Jay Maskus back in the garage, round two. All right. I'm going to get pumped up right now. <laughs> yeah, use that little squeeze. That's a hard one, too. I always wonder what, it's interesting when people fidget with you. I don't know what they're going to pick up. So, uh, what? Do you, I haven't seen you in a few years. We had a nice yeah. chat the last time. What are you doing out here? Not much. Uh, my kid was going to Disney World with the with my two sisters and my brother, and me and my wife didn't want to go, so we decided to come to California, and it's our first trip together away from the kid. Oh, really? Yeah. How old's the kid now? Nine. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, so, do you, are you staying at a swanky hotel? Not swanky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We had a bit of a, a Airbnb disaster, you know. Oh uh, yeah. We were supposed to go to this place in Malibu, and uh, you know, 
my wife's really into Colombo, so you know, there's these winding hills. Yeah, and you, you know, it does look like Colombo up there. But when we got to the house, the TV show Colombo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we got to the house, we got really scared, and there was really loud wind chimes, and it was just creepy. And the shower looked like some weird Hobbit cave, and I was just like, I got to get out of here. Oh, really? So it was a vibe. It wasn't yeah. like a, there wasn't people living there. No, you just got you got creeped yep. out. Yeah, totally. Really? Well, I mean, that sounds like a, just like one of those weirdo Malibu houses. Yeah, but... And it had something else going on? I didn't want to be there when night fell. You know what I mean? I was just like, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't picture that. <laughs> so did you end up coming back into town? Did you get holed up out in Malibu? No, yeah, we bailed back to Santa Monica. Well, that's fun. How long are you in town for? It's a Monday. Who are you hanging out with? What did you do today? Um, just rode a bike on the beach and came over here. All right, so now we're going to talk about this record because I like I I pulled it out just because it was something that I bought. Well, this is the story with this. Her name is how do you pronounce it? Sibyl Bayer. Sibyl Bayer. 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 Because you're German. Yeah. Your wife's German. Yeah. But like I had this, it was sent to me probably by the label. Yeah. And uh, I was going through records, and I and I, and I put it into a box that I was going to trade out. But I knew I, I thought I'd listen to it, and I thought it was something, and I didn't know anything about it. And I brought it over to Dan, you know, the guy who likes a certain type of music. Goes, oh, you don't want to get rid of this one? I'm like, really? Yeah. He's like, yeah, no, that's a that's a great record, and I think that's the only way it exists. This record, it's not a reissue. No, but you had something to do with this because I just pulled this yeah. out. But what happened with this record? Well, um, yeah, since my wife's Germans, we know a lot of other Germans wandering around in the Northeast, and uh, <laughs> one of them brought us to this guy, Robbie Byers' house, yeah. you know, like an hour away, and said, oh, he's my friend, blah, blah, blah. What's he do, that guy? He's a musician okay. as well, and we go there, and he's playing this music, and it's like, sounds very, like, contemporary, like, this sounds like this could be an indie rock hit. You yeah, know? yeah. very cat power like right it was like what is this This is like this is totally um what's happening right, right. yeah so like, oh, this is my mom i compiled some of her songs for her birthday i made it into a i went through her tapes and made this you know compilation i was like you could definitely get this put out and he's like oh really uh you want to yeah just <laughs> give me the tape i'll give it to some people and and then i gave it to some people and um this guy in Elf Power, I knew he'd be really into it. He was over at my house, and I played him, and his eyes lit up. You know, I knew he got all psyched. And and, it, and did it find success? Well, with record nerds, yes. You know. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's a really beautiful record. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, you know what I listened to for the first time? I think uh, Adele. Yeah. I got into Adele through The Voice. Like, right. I started watching The Voice with my kid, and yeah. This guy, Billy Gilman, did an Adele song, and I was like, Billy Gilman, I was obsessed with him like in the early 90s, because he was this child country star, he right. was like 12, and he had these hits, and and we went to the beach once with this drag queen, who's like, you gotta listen to Billy Gilman, like all the drag queens were all over this kid, they could smell the tragedy on him already, and, <laughs> and I was like, we'd listen to it, and the song was amazing, and I couldn't believe suddenly he's grown up and on the voice and he's a judge no he was a contestant oh he was a contestant and it turned out he was gay like they could sniff it out they back know, then they knew yeah. and, and he did an adele song he did an adele song i got into adele through that 
I do like I had this moment where I'm like I don't know if I've ever heard an Adele song. Yeah. And like these records and and y- you know pop music is pop music but but people love her. Yeah. And it's not like she's some fluke. So I listened and I'm like holy shit. It's like uh the some of the stuff I heard was kind of like, you know, like old uh, soul kind of stuff. Yeah. I she, like her. Yeah, she has such a cool personality like that. Yeah. And she's in the car singing with james Corden. i gotta That's watch that pretty you're, amazing yeah. you get the second you're the second person that told me to watch that yeah what about lord let's talk pop stars i don't know much about you don't her. know much about her you ever seen her she dances it wild no she it's played compelling. she played with nirvana i remember at the uh rock and roll hall that's where i first saw her she must have been like 15 16 maybe 17 years old and that kind of blew me away very intense yeah then i played an after party with nirvana that same night and everyone else came but she didn't show up to sing her oh really maybe it was too late she was (laughs) she was like in high school you know i've been listening to is that um the ravi shankar records yeah right yes he's got a vibe right yeah they're relaxing aren't they yeah i love all that any raga thing i'm a sucker for you know do you ever think about doing like a uh a jamaskis raga yeah i do like sometimes some fake kind of stuff like that in yoga places with some you know guys i know who do who's playing yoga places and do kirtans so wait now let me just understand this you, you're doing some yoga place gigs sometimes <laughs> Well, I'll do my fi- my impression of uh, Ravi Shankar, which sounds more like Mick Taylor. <laughs> Wait, just let's let's flesh this out a little bit. So, yeah. where, where's the yoga tour take you? Like where you, Brooklyn j- usually. So you just show up like they yeah. do live music at yoga places. Yeah. Like in now, are you billed? Like are yeah. you Jay Maskus Yoga? Um, well, I have a gig coming up. Yeah, it's me and this guy David Das and Tony, who I play with. We usually play together. And, and people are doing yoga, so you're you're working. No, no, it's just at a yoga place. They're just singing. Oh, that's different. Along. I I, <laughs> I I pictured that. Like today's class is going to be interesting. I'm going to yeah. talk you through the poses and <laughs> Jay Mascus <laughs> is going to be playing some music for you. I would do that. Yeah. Well, there. I, I, is it challenging to do something meditative? No, I like it. Yeah. What do you do? Acoustic? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I like to play electric, or I can play my electric sitar and get. You have one of those? Yeah, the fake. You know, like sixties. Yeah. You know. Do, now, is it? It does. It look like a guitar. Well, they try to make it look like a sitar, but it plays like a guitar, yeah. So what what is the difference? Like there's more strings? No, it just buzzes, you know. <laughs> so it sounds like a sitar a little bit. Because like that whole thing, like sometimes I try to add those flourishes, those, yeah. those things, and they don't fit into a lot of what I do. They they stand out like in the middle of a, a, a sort of Peter Green blues run. Yeah. If you throw one of those, it doesn't quite fit. Do you ever watch Peter Green showing off his guitars? Oh, know? yeah. The so old Peter sad, Green? Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, don't know where I got this one. <laughs> it has 14 different, you know, triangles coming out of it, and you're just like... It's where he's walking around the weird gated yeah, the, the yeah. lockup. Oh, my God. Where's the Les Paul again? Yeah. <laughs> but tell me, though, I always enjoy uh, hearing the Jay Mascus play. All right. Let's see what's going on here. Yeah, I'll try to set up too. Sounds cool. good to you? I don't know. Yeah. 
You're hearing it, aren't you? I'm hearing it. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I always hear my voice. I'm like, what yeah, is what? that? <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll be over here riding the levels. All right. Nice, nice little blues riff on the tag. <laughs> yeah, I'm practicing my blues for well, my I, sound man. Likes. I, oh, does he? he? That's his thing. Wait, you want to do one more? All right. Every dream shot by daylight and I pray 
That was great, Jay. Thanks for coming by. Sure. Thanks. So, that was me and Jay Maskis. That was fun, right? It's always good to see Jay. He cracks me up. Once you get to know him, he cracks you up. Danny Fields, the man at the juncture of a lot of rock history and a lot of great stories. Uh, I, I was just surprised I got to talk to him because I don't think he, he gets out much to do these. And he's got, uh, there's, a, there's a documentary out. This is what spurred me to talk to him. It's called Danny Says, a documentary on the life and times of Danny Fields is now available on iTunes, Amazon, DVD, and other on-demand services. But, uh, but I, I, it, was, it was good. It was, it was actually a challenging conversation, not in the way uh, that you would think, just in the way of like, man, there's a lot here. How do I get it all in a line? So this is me and uh, Danny Fields. I can't even tell you what exactly he is. He's an art guy, a publicist, a, a provocateur in a way, a, 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 a conduit. Danny Fields is a connector and a through line to some of the best bands ever. Okay, this is me and Danny. I didn't send you that book. It's the only thing in my life that I ever did. I never did anything except take pictures, and that's why I'm so proud of it. I don't know that it's the only thing you did in your life. It's the only thing I did <laughs> that I did that was mine because there's my camera and my pictures right, and right. my film yeah. and my writing, my choosing right. them, and my being able to take them. Of the Ramones. Yeah, just for during, during... What year? 76 and 77. The, those years yeah yeah the the important years the first trip to los angeles the first trip to london the first yeah you know uh walking through washington dc and my voice is shaky because i'm just starting because i'm always nervous you're nervous always really like even if you're just sitting still <sighs> i used to ha- i used to have a show <laughs> on wfmu 8 Hours a week, Thursday and Friday, eight to midnight. Well, that was a, a life changer for you, wasn't I it? I know, and I'm so, I was so unnervous. <laughs> and if you listened, because they kept it all. And yeah, I have this like hello, mellow, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. The boys. classic, hey man, yeah, the classic FMU, yeah, um, <laughs> late sixties, 
yeah. FM voice. Yeah, and I had such freedom, and I just would play half-hour blocks of music and backsell them. Yeah. I never say coming up this, and <laughs> they just segued, and it was kind of wonderful. And you started like like I watched a documentary. Danny says, and I liked it. Now, what I, what was interesting about it is how many how much different footage they had of you over many different years. And, <laughs> And many different lifetimes and all squashed together. <laughs> yeah. You know. I've talked to a couple of people that I, that talked about you directly. Well, I had Legs in here recently, but I had Iggy in here, yeah. and uh, you know, and I had Wayne Kramer in here. Yeah, you know, and I think the 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 guy that talked to you the mo- about you the most was probably Wayne. But you didn't start out in music. You were like some uh, like whiz kid, right? Where where did you grow up? In Queens. Which part of Queens? Which part of Queens? The southern, not good part of Queens. <laughs> There's a good part? There's <laughs> oh, yeah. When it gets hilly, it's better. I, I, I lived in Astoria for a while. So uh-huh. it's just like, you are you were just like a Jewish kid from Queens. Well, I'm just like. I'm, <laughs> first of all, there weren't many in my part of Queens. Yeah. The Jews were rare. Yeah. They were not, were not in Forest Hills. Uh-huh. And... Um, Something called something Goodfellas territory. Oh yeah, does yeah, that yeah. say kind yeah. of like bring something mostly to mind? Italian? Yes, mostly yeah. Italian, Irish, German. Yeah, my father was the doctor, so oh, he was second only to the priest in authority, and right, right, sacredness. He, and then he got respect, and I was the doctor's obnoxious son. I <laughs> am, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, loser sissy son. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, that was rough. Did you have brothers and sisters? Like I had a younger right? brother, but you know, Manhattan was there. It was right. a subway right away. When did so, you start going in? As soon as I could get on the train. <laughs> as soon as I could reach the turnstile. Yeah. Always. And, but you know, I didn't start. My family was all over. It was a New York family. So there was right. the Manhattan branch people and the right. Riverside Drive right. people. and. Aunts and uncles and whatnot. And then the son went to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, So they spread out. It was spread out. Yeah, the the Fields diaspora. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all over Brooklyn-ish. And when when did you like you ended up like because I, I did I did uh, watch the movie so I know more than I should than I uh, when I then when I do uh, generally interview people but you were you were a bright kid right and yeah. you and you're running I'm still in, a bright kid I'm yeah just, everyone else was so stupid <laughs> but oh. did you go to did you go to college when you were like fifteen yeah I was fifteen and that was you know not not the easiest but no I can't not, imagine. There's worse things in the sure. world, you know. And what was your interest? What were you going to do? Uh, nothing. Nothing. No, no interest to have friends. Yeah. I wanted right. friends. I never had any. <laughs> yeah. This is so sad. No, it's not. Uh, um, I went to Penn. Yeah. Which is some place called Philadelphia. Right. Sure, Philly. And uh, it was not heaven on earth. It yeah. was not. I mean, compared to New York, it sure. did not. Being in the Ivy League, which is meaningless, but the only thing that I meant was that on weekends you got in a car and pretended you cared about a football game, right? which I don't even know what the rules are, <laughs> but you pretended that we're playing yeah. the we. Yeah, the collective we. I mean, politically, yeah. this is, no, it yeah. makes me sick to think that I ever used that word. And we were in, we were in Princeton or we sure. were in Providence right. or New Haven. Yeah. Or, or Cambridge, or right? Boston, Cambridge, England. and I just thought, why, why am I not here? Yeah, 
This in is Boston. where I want to be. I want to be in Cambridge. You I want, want to? I want to be near the streets of Harvard. Yeah. Just, just I want to be there. Dude, because it felt... Uh, I felt like I should be... Like, I feel now I should, I'd want to be in London. Right. I, I want to be yeah, in New York. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like, wherever you are. There's some you, order to it. There's no. some uh, a style to it. There's a, a an aristocratic vibe. No, that's not that... There's... It's a selfish longing to feel as if I'm kind of home. Right. You know, I like these people. They like me. Did you At go? long you, last. Right. Did you end up, you ended up going there, right? So I applied to Harvard Law School. Yeah. So not interested in being a lawyer. It's one of those things like a dentist. I said, well, if I yeah. need, need one of these right. things, I'll hire one. I right. Be one. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. but it was an easy way to get in and to be living in the Harvard University community because my marks were so good. Right. And I got this really high score on the law school aptitude test. And you went to law school. And mm -hmm. there. I went to law school and hated law yeah. school, but loved, as I thought I would, as my fantasy told me I would, loved being in Harvard Square. Yeah. Which was very not like queens no no it's or philadelphia a, it's sort of it is kind uh, of stunning i i was I, I lived in boston for a long time and there's something about harvard square they want to look cool didn't they look cooler yeah, or like yeah, oh, denser sure. den bigger density of, of coolness yeah yeah okay. yeah a lot of layers yeah yeah you had a lot of options to to wear a sporty clothing yeah these, yeah oh, i always wanted to know someone who looked like that yeah or all the sporty clothing just steal sporty clothing at, you know with jay press and all <laughs> yeah <the> great stores <laughs> <laughs> and try it on. So, what uh, changed with the law, with the law school? What it was you, so boring, and yeah. there were, you had to memorize things. It's not about how smart you are anymore. It's yeah. about how good is your memory, right? How well do you know what some judge one day decided should be the final solution? Yeah, term. Yeah. Sorry, but should be the ultimate yeah. way of reasoning out this problem that is before us, and that becomes the law. Yeah, this is the tradition. This is the common law. The sure, all isn't written down. Yeah, like so, precedent. And what year was this? I hated this. Yeah. Oh, going to fifty nine sixty. So what? Everyone had a suit, and yeah. then people. You like that though, right? No, you didn't like this suit. I like dressed like this. Oh, oh no, no. <laughs> and I never. Yeah. Oh, I hated it. I still don't. <laughs> I couldn't do it today. Yeah. And. And people went to the bathroom with each other, sat on adjacent toilet bowls so that they could refresh their memories, excuse me, about the, the law, law, this case, yeah. which is going to be on the test. Yeah. This is the way. So you go into the bathroom and you hear people in the stalls discussing uh, well, yeah, arguments? Were, wait, wait. If you were there alone, you started to feel I'm doing something wrong. I don't belong here. I'm going to flunk out. <laughs> if you go to the bathroom alone? Well, yeah. Yeah, I should be with someone. I shouldn't be wasting my time. Yeah. So I think I'll just play bridge. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bunch of other people who hate going to these classes, too. And You found them? I found them. We yeah. found each other. Yeah. We believe it. And so we sat there playing bridge. That's arrogant. What was it that sparked the interest in? I, I don't know. Would it, would, it wouldn't be counterculture, but it would have been what was happening. Do you, you know, like music and, and everything else. Uh, I think my, my life and my education probably started there. People who read, people who didn't really know yeah. what they wanted to do. Right, but were smart. Those are my kind of people. Right. They're really <laughs> smart. And they don't know what they want to do. And yeah. they're beautiful and they're young and they go to Harvard. Yeah. And they love to fuck, which yeah. is important. Yeah. Very. When you're 19. Sure. I was 19 in yeah. law school. Yeah. 
and was it easy to get fucked at Harvard? Yes. <laughs> yes, if you were 19, you were, it would be easy for anyone in the world to be fucked when they're 19. But it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you couldn't be out really, right? Yes, you could. Oh, you could? <laughs> uh, what does that mean? There's that word that, that, that gets sprung on me. It meant nothing to me. Was I out? What does that yeah, mean? I don't know. It's a word that I guess straight people know. Yeah, but we didn't, there, there were no straight people to know. We found each other. Yeah, sure. And in a community of, mm-hmm. of uh, pers- in many ways, like-minded people. Yeah. Who, some of whom went to Harvard, some of whom went, once went and now are in graduate school, some of whom went and finished graduate school but stayed there because it was the coolest place they ever stayed and they couldn't imagine having to leave right. this bosom of elitism. So when do you go to New York? Okay, when I flunk, <laughs> flunk out of Harvard, when, when when I dropped out, yeah, I dropped out of Harvard Law School and said I can no longer continue to take up a, spe- a seat. Like nineteen sixty, yeah. And when did you get like locked in with? Uh, when did you sort of find yourself in the orbit of whatever was going on in the art war- wise? Art wise, you know, okay. With Warhol, we went to, yes. Okay, there was a bar, yeah, called the San Remo at Bleecker yeah. and McDougal. So, yeah. It was there, and it was a bar that was turning quasi-gay. Yeah. It was, but, uh, Edward Albee, Andy uh-huh. Warhol, Jasper Johns, mm-hmm. Bob Rauschenberg, the- Hanging out. The great art. Yeah. Happened to be gay, but you know, some of the great geniuses yeah. of the, that era- Yeah. Uh, hung and, out there, so that's kind of where- one would go yeah and bars that sprung up around that neighborhood and you just met them there just went and yeah. then, you know you'd make a friend and just be like someone who goes and then yeah. three girls had an apartment on that we loved on what eighth street yeah and that was a hangout and you went from being sitting at one table to being able to get up and go and sit at another which right. was very important sure and then, you, then all of a sudden, and then making your own table. Because the, the ultimate thing, man, things must be different. But to find a prime empty table, yeah. and sit on it by yourself, and then watch who comes. It, watch who comes. And yeah. Some and it's some a competition that you have with your destiny. Yeah. I'm gonna make a great table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start with nothing. No money. No drinks for everyone. No buckets of champagne. Yeah. Nothing. Just I'm gonna be sitting there. Yeah. And it's gonna be all right to sit there and let's, yeah. let's see what happens. And you and did you collect? Did you make your table? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be talking about it now if it had been a complete failure. <laughs> That was yeah. This is why you came to New York so you could start a table. That was that was my first start a table. Okay, um, but you must have been a raconteur or, or at least fun. You know, I wasn't. I, I'm not. I wasn't. I never was. I could. I, come on. No, I could. I could. What was your gift then? I could suffer geniuses. Oh, I could love them. Yeah, for you were a for, good audience. You were a good I, battery. I was a good friend. Yeah, uh-huh. to people who are really smart. When you go to the factory, like you know, I've only seen this in movies, and you know, I've read about it. But I mean, what what was the experience? I mean, did you? It doesn't sound like you had any real affinity for the art necessarily. It was more of a scene, right? Well, the art. You said that with some amount of patronization the uh, art. what did you mean by that 
Well, I meant that like you, you know when the art was it. I get it. We're, I get it. You no, know, it was uh, whatever Andy was. Yeah, there was art being generated. I yeah, mean to be rude. Oh, it's okay. But there was. Um, he was having art because he was into mass multiples. Yeah, multiples, which is the story of modern art. I mean, this is how Campbell's soup cans is yeah. art is yeah. getting big. I mean, come on, think about that. Yeah, it was I mean, it used crazy. To be it was like not, no one ever an, seen it before. Antelopes and then virgins and then Jesus and saints and now soup cans. What? <laughs> you know, dukes and yeah, yeah. soup cans. Yeah, okay. right. Uh, historical events and soup cans. Yeah. Whoa, <laughs> this is wonderful. And it turned uh, it, it turned the whole intelligentsia and art scene upside down. It turned so, everything upside down. Yeah. But I I know at some point you transitioned into working in the music business. Yeah. Okay. Legitimately. Legitimately by answering an ad. I always was going to go into print media. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't know what else to say. It was like, what do you want to be? And they said, you've been asking me this forever. Leave me alone. Yeah. You eventually have to sort of kind of answer when you start looking at wanted. Yeah. And I sold books. I worked at a magazine called Liquor Store Monthly. Yeah. As a production. So I learned how magazines get made. Yeah. All this enhanced my viability <laughs> as a print medium person. <laughs> yeah. Duh. And saw an ad saying, managing editor for Pop Magazine. It's being sought. Uh, a Pop of, Magazine or a just Pop Magazine? Pop, okay. Uh, okay. Knowledge of Pop World. So this is post-Warhol. This is like you're already there. And I'm there yeah. being nobody. Yeah. I'm there being somebody with a floor you could sleep on. Hanging. And, and friends. Hanging out with Edie Sedgwick. And friends and, yeah. of friends. Yeah. And we were, it's like turning into like a family. But sure. you always want, well, he's there because he writes songs. Yeah. And he's there because he could do silk screens. And Andy <laughs> is at the center of this like God. And he's yeah. there because he's the night watchman. Yeah. And he's there because he takes photographs. And, and you were just there. I was there being <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got the job. There were hundreds, hundreds of applicants, I was told. The only way I could prove that ever. Uh, by lying and saying, pretending he meant the pop art scene. Because there I was going to all these parties at, at Castelli Gallery. Yeah. So I said, oh, knowledge of pop scene. Sure. I'm sure. into Rauschenberg opening. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And then I got Billboard magazine and memorized it. Like yeah. I could still do like how I got through college yeah. and memorized yeah. textbooks, you know, and came in for the next meeting. I could tell him what was 14 on the charts and yeah, didn't know to anything it. about this. <laughs> yeah. And he said, oh, you're hired to yeah. be managing editor of a teenage magazine called Datebook. Uh-huh. Well, this is nice. He wanted it to be, he wanted it to follow in the successful steps of 16 magazine. Get those little girls buying the magazine. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to write about the birds and Jefferson yeah. Airplane and the Velvet Underground and the Rolling Stones and what was cool. But I had my in right then. So, so it was mainstream and you were not, that was not I what was you were always, It was always alternative. When did you meet the Velvet Underground? How, how early on okay. was that? It was, we, bunch of, a bunch of people from the factory went yeah. to hear them play at the, wherever they were playing. Yeah. But before that, Donald Lyons and I had chased this really, really good looking guy down the street carrying a guitar on McDougal Street yeah of course and ran out to him and said 
Hey, you're so good looking. You should be in an Andy Warhol movie. Doesn't this sound amazing to admit this? We actually did that because we were, why not? <laughs> this guy has a guitar. Yeah. He could be singing. Yeah. You know, so that's legit. Yeah. And he likes guys that look good on film. I bet he's going to. And yeah. So why not? Isn't that balls to go up to yeah. something? Say, would you like to be in an Andy Warhol movie? So, as it was, it turned out great. And there is. Who was it, Lou? It was Eric Anderson. Uh huh. Okay. This is in the movie. It was called Space. A bunch of people at the factory, about a dozen, sitting around. Eric Anderson is there with a the guitar. Andy is learning how to focus, how to pan, mm-hmm. how to <laughs> tilt. Yeah. You know, yeah. on camera. Right. And there's this movie. Yeah. And. Eric is, my, what's, what can we do to have a hoot nanny at the factory in yeah. 1965? Oh, what a nice idea. We're going to have a hoot nanny. You know, we do everything else. Why not have a hoot nanny? <laughs> so Michael rowed the boat ashore. They tried that. <laughs> and people fell over and, you know, pushed each other out of the way and preened yeah. and all that. Yeah. And, and Eric and Edie are sort of making eyes at each other. Um it's extremely, extremely wonderful. My friend Donald is trying to teach Edie the words to the Hail Mary. Uh, yeah. I can imagine, like <laughs> 30 times. And this is like, yes, this is an anti Warhol movie. Right. This is kind of perfect. Yeah. And it was supposed to have been scripted. The script writer in Ronnie Tavell and Disgust walked out. And everybody just kept laughing. Yeah. And having a good time. Okay. Five months after that, the Velvet Underground moved in. So this. To answer your question, I had to take this back route. So that was the music comes through the factory in the through form Eric of a solo. Yes, yeah. a solo acoustic singer. Yeah. Okay, who is really talented and beautiful and wonderful. Yeah. And then come the Velvet Underground. Might as well have a band. Hey, we had a folking that worked yeah. out pretty well. And they hung out for a while. They hung out for quite a while. And they more than hung out. I mean, it became a professional association with a record and tour. And yeah. It was real. Right. The factory found itself in the music business. Right. Um, with the first Velvet Underground album. Yeah. Yeah. And and forever, when you think of it. Yeah. Because, you know, then Lou and John go do songs for Drella long after Andy's gone. How this, much did he influence them, really? I mean, what you know, what what was his impact on the Velvet Underground? You know, yeah. they talk about it a lot. Yeah. And a lot. They uh, worship him. Yeah. In, certainly in retrospect. At the time, you know, they are a rock and roll band. Yeah. They're kind of being used as sort of a toy. Um, right. Oh, it's possible to get a movie projector and run a movie and shine it on the band that's playing up there at the same time we want to do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Oh, let's put all these gels into projectors and cover the band with, you know, polka yeah. dots and stripes. Right. Oh, let's do that. But they just wanted so, to play. Yeah, but they also wanted the audience that the celebrity of Andy Warhol and and a place so so here you are immersed in this and now you've got this job at a pop rock magazine yeah and what was your first uh, big uh my first big thing was to do something spectacular and mischievous because yeah. i kind of resented uh i resented it a great deal yeah i did get an invitation to go on the rolling stones boat ride uh-huh um which the boat pulled away before i got there <laughs> um but you, that's when I met Linda Eastman, too, because we had for someone to get off the boat with the camera. That's a whole other story. But Linda McCartney, the future Linda McCartney. Yeah. 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 So that was, you know. It, Did she inspire you to take photographs? 
Yes, very much, mm -hmm. very much. Um, you wrote a book on her too, didn't you? I wrote, yeah, I wrote a, a, a tribute memoir, uh -huh. sort of, of me and her. Did you stay in touch with her all the way through? Uh, yes, and as much as you could, uh, because I think when she first married Paul in 1968, yeah. 69, I think I get the feeling he didn't encourage her to keep in touch with her friends in New York, most of whom had columns yeah. and or, you know, edited magazines, yeah. et cetera. So, but yeah, uh, at the time of his first album, they um, came back. Oh, you the know, McCartney said, album? Oh, yeah, tell, right. tell, tell us about this music business yeah. now. Uh -huh, There's uh -huh. no more Beatles. Right. Uh, here I am. <laughs> it's always, you know. We can uh, use that guy now. Yeah, well, we could, yeah. Let's, you know, it will remind us what's been happening these years. But you worked at, you did a Beatles story, though. You did Beatles stories for the date book. We owned Beatles stories. Yeah. Okay. Among the things we owned, which, which Art Unger had purchased, was a series of interviews with each of them done by Maureen Cleave, who's uh -huh. a London journalist. And I found that we owned them. We owned the right to publish them in America. And so I read them, and I said, "Whoa, this is quite extraordinary." Here, uh, well, I have to just say what Sir Paul McCartney said, talking about America. Um, it's a lousy country where anyone black is a dirty nigger. So, whoa, there's a line. Let's put it on the cover of a magazine for eleven-year-old girls. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and you, you did that, yes, and. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then there's an interview with John Lennon. Yeah. And in the course of the interview, he says, oh, we're more popular than Jesus now. Yeah. And <laughs> elsewhere in the same interview, he says, I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And he put huh? the other quote on the cover, too? Yes, both of them. And followed by Timothy Leary says something and Bob Dylan says uh -huh. something, about message songs or something. So what was Unger saying when you're taking the magazine in this direction? Oh, uh, he was saying, well, this is really a big step. But hey, um, and as I'm discovering now, many years later, he's considered a pioneer, having been the publisher in um, promoting a left-wing ethos. Uh-huh. And directing it at young rock and roll kids and consumers in the middle 60s, which was ahead of its time because, hey, he bought those. Hey, he said, okay. He said, yes, we can use them on the cover and as the headlines inside. So, but, okay. That's how history is treating him? I'm glad it's starting to, yeah. and in academia, yeah. sort of, because right. he is rather, I mean, if I'm obscure, can you imagine how obscure he must be? Right. Um, and I was fired for, not that, yeah. just because I didn't know how to put out a magazine. Yeah. You know, I pretended. Right. I was faking. I didn't know how to be an editor. And I've, I've learned, but I wasn't then. After I was fired, the magazine came out. As the Beatles were doing a giant stadium tour of the United States, uh -huh. and uh, an irate mother in Alabama saw this, we're more popular than Jesus quote from the Beatles. From yeah. John, they were predisposed in the parts of <laughs> certain regions of the United States yeah. to despise the Beatles existentially. Yeah. Okay. This is kind of like the prick that did it. I think they hated them 
because their daughters liked them, uh-huh. because they had long hair, and so they thought they were faggots. Yeah. Um, because they sang, and they looked, look, you know, they were sissies uh-huh. or something. Right. And girls screamed, and boys hated them. Yeah. Because the girls screamed over them, except right. the boys who were cool enough to like them as a band or right. whatever. So it turned into big screaming. And then it turned into uh, a book burning yeah. where pastors and preachers and, uh, no, said to, and DJs, there, imagine if you were sitting there, okay, kid, zuh, we just found out that the Beatles are antichrist, mm-hmm. and they think they're bigger than Jesus. Well, first of all, the bigger than Jesus is one of those quotes that never got said, but it's come down in history, so it has kind of familiarity to right, it. Right, right. It's wrong. He yeah. said, we're more popular than Jesus. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, and there were barn fires, bonfires. Yeah. And people brought their records and trucks, ran them over, and they poured melted tar on them, and they had blazes. It was like Berlin in 1933. Yeah. Burning books. They were burning images burning of records. the Beatles. Yeah. It was, uh, this is how do you get rid of Satan? Yeah. You know, why do you burn a witch? Yeah. You don't just chop off her head. Yeah. You burn her. Yeah. Okay. This was it. This yeah. Is a metaphor for that. And that was happening as my magazine appeared on the newsstands and it was causing, um, wow, uh, uh, a real reaction. A ruckus, a yeah. real reaction. And the Beatles America. were set to tour? The Beatles were on tour yeah. and countered death threats. Um, fears, paranoia, what is that sound? Is it a shot? Yeah. You know, and then we go on stage and you could, could they could hear nothing. These were stadiums they were playing. And the girls giant. screaming. Yeah, the girls screaming. They couldn't hear themselves. They could have been mouthing the words. Yeah. I think. I did not know them, but... Um, and then was that I it I played San Francisco and it was the end of the two-week tour and whatever... The conversation, they had different accounts of it they had backstage was, this is going to be our last show. And it was Candlestick Park in September 1966 yeah. in San Francisco. And they put down, and they never played again, except an impromptu thing in London on a rooftop. But this was it. Now, I didn't, first of all, it wasn't intentional. You know, right. Oh, yeah, I broke up the Beatles. no. I just printed a story that had run in London, and nobody even paid attention to it when it did. Nobody said, oh, dear, nobody in England. In London, right. right. Uh, and all of wherever, six months earlier this yeah. happened, it sank yeah. without a trace. Right. But in Alabama, it made, it was quite a furor. It was galvanizing. It, it was, yeah, and it started a fire that spread. Right, and then it was also, it became clear where the rock lines were drawn in a way. Like, I, I mean, if that's the reaction the Beatles get, I mean, that was the fight for rock and roll at that time. Yeah. It's so good that we, isn't that great that we can look at it now and say that? But imagine if you were consumed by it and imagine if you were them yeah. or their fans yeah, or the people who said, I knew they would turn out to be Jesus haters like because they have long hair. Yeah. Like what? But And within can, three years from there... You know, rock would ultimately win that cultural war in a way. Well, it was a beachfront, let's say. Yeah. Beachhead, what's yeah. the word? Beachhead. And, yeah. And, and 
it was a big battle. It was big. It still, I think, has not has not been really no, explored. We've, we've lost some territory uh, in you, the last yeah, that, year. Yes, and you're going to, and this is part of the story, is that perhaps we're cl- too close to it now, though it was 50 years ago, last yeah. fall, last yeah. fall 50. Um, and we still haven't gotten our arms around what the hell happened. Mm-hmm. And... And what happened to them? But what happened to music? And what happened to America? Culture, as we saw, what happened yeah. to America? It was it was what we see now. Yeah, it was a schism. Yeah, and and we see it now with this thing yeah. that happened after the election thing. Yeah, and we saw it then. There it was. It was a, a, a blueprint for it, or is it early? It was a sign a message well yeah it was like oh that that that's there this is part of us this is part of america well, you know didn't say it then no <laughs> you said well what have we become what are we dealing with what is this death it's yeah. about death it's about jesus it's about fire yeah and destruction and so when you no. get fired, when so but then i does that is that part of the drive for you to continue in music i moved to la that summer I mean, this all came out while I was living in Los Angeles. This is before the the DJ job? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I kept thinking, I, sh- I should move here. This place is cool. Yeah. And I stayed in L.A. the summer of 66. I was there to see this wonderful catastrophe happen as the result of a simple decision to put a couple of lights that had already been seen six yeah. months before in London on the cover of a magazine to see all all hell explode, which was so much fun. And I decided I couldn't live here because this is, oh, I couldn't make it down stoned. I mean, I had to drive down Laurel Canyon Boulevard stoned late at night and with people hating me yeah. and the single behind me because yeah. they do it all the time and they could go fast and they may be stoned, but they may not be, and yeah. I am. And, Oh, these curves. Here comes another one. Oh, my God. And I really, because of that, he left before Uber. I don't think I could live here. Right. I'd like to be able to walk. Walk when you're high. Because they call a taxi or get in a subway. Okay. So but you yes. go back. And, and then you took the job as a DJ? Uh, WF. I had friends. Who, yeah, there was a, what was the station in San Francisco that went poof? Oh, I don't remember. Freeform, KSFO or KSAN or something. Uh-huh. It was freeform radio. Yeah. And it was you played what you wanted. Yeah. And they decided it was unprofitable. And a bunch of people were terminated. And each went out and and like a spore like a, of a species sort of found a place at another radio station, another market in America. And... One of the San Francisco people named Larry Yurden found a small college station in New Jersey called WFMU. Yeah, my buddy uh, Tom Sharpling used to be on there for years okay. recently. Yeah, this is yeah, yeah. So Still you could do what you want. Yeah, it was so great, and they, I got to be a guest, and I did so good as a guest because I have a thing for pretty music. Yeah, and I hate music, but. Sometimes it can be pretty. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I got my own show, eight hours a week, two nights a week, while I worked for Electra Records. Imagine how unethical this is. You were working for Electra? Yes. At the I was time? like, I might as well be, you know, Ivanka Trump. I mean, I was really 
it's corrupt. Yeah, but what were you doing for Electra? I was their publicity head of publicity, the director of publicity. And that's when you were working at WFMU? Yeah, at the same time. So on my, And who the, were the bands? Who were the bands? For the Electra, who were you? Oh, this dude is in the MC5 bands. I didn't sign to them. But that was after. That was before you were. Wait, you were at FMU when you signed those Six, bands. Sixty-eight, sixty-nine. Yes. So uh-huh. how did you get the job with Electra? Okay, I got it because in the earlier magazine I had uh, sensed the viability as a popular event uh, creation of the Doors, and you sensed it. Yeah. I, you know, I saw it happening. Where, in L.A.? I saw it in New York from, you know, girls who had gone to see them on their first New York appearance and came back, you know, in a, in a vapors and you know, <laughs> faint. Uh, and... And you told Electra these guys were yeah, the guys? No. Then I had a call from a friend of mine, um, okay, whom I'd met that summer, yeah, Ronnie Heron, and she was a manager of the whiskey, and yeah. she also managed kind of the doors. Uh-huh. And she said, "Oh, do me a favor. This band I work for is coming to New York, and would you be a publicist for them?" Uh-huh. Sort of. So I said, "Oh yeah, sure. That's all. I'll see them. I heard people see them, and yeah. oh okay." And I went to see them, and I called Electra the next day, and said, "Hey." I'm the publicist for your band, The Doors, it seems. I should say, I'm getting paid. It's just I'm doing someone a favor, but you have to say that. Yeah. And they were thrilled to have a publicist <laughs> yeah. in their midst. Mm-hmm. And um, so months later, I was hired by Electra. Uh, There's another magazine I got fired from called Hollow Blue, which became Circus. Oh, yeah. I always I get that. fired. I got fired yeah. from everything. Well, yeah, but you're, so you had to deal with Jim a lot. Jim Morrison. Yes, I know. Yes, I think the word yeah. strikes thunder into yeah. being uh, <laughs> and, and lightning. Yeah, yeah, I did. He was really great the first time. I, I said, "Hi, I'm your press agent." And during re- they were rehearsing in the morning to, for their show at On Deeds yeah. that night, and I said, "I'm your press agent. I would like to interview you one at a time." And I said, "Come and sit with me." And he t- told me about who he was and what yeah. he did and. Okay, and I went back to a lecture, and I said, oh, I'm really glad to be working with these people, and I think they have a hit. With Light What's My that? Fire? Yes, but guess what? What? It was seven minutes long, as yeah. recorded by Paul Rothschild, and is on the first album, and they said, oh, it's seven minutes long, as I just said. It can't be a hit. You know, it can't be on the radio unless you're three minutes long. And I said, oh, and they said, besides, we just released... I'll break on through. Yeah. Man, that light my fire. What a song that is. <laughs> and I was not the first person to say that. Yeah. But I was the first person outside the company who came in there and said, hello, I think you have a hit there, but yeah. it's too long. Do something. Uh, or not. Yeah. You know, what do I know? Yeah. And they remembered that I was the first person outside the company who came and said, hey, you have a hit. And would you like to start a publicity department for us? Because so it was I, a hit. Yeah, the week I started there was number three headed to number one. At number seven one. minutes, or did they trim it? Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, in the interim. Yeah. Of course. Uh, they responded to the pressure for, uh, that was growing. Yeah. To, hey, that's what a catchy tune. You yeah. There. It's a hit. Uh, and, re- and cut it to three minutes, and then it started zooming up the charts. Yeah. And, and was that a, Jim mad about that? 
I think who can get mad about having the number one? He got <laughs> mad when I started intruding this, remembering who I had been as editor of a teeny bopper magazine, uh -huh. uh, establishing, creating, promoting, yeah, in the style of Sixteen Magazine and Gloria Stavers. Teen Idols. Yeah. There he was. Yeah. It was a bowl. There was a teen <laughs> idol. And that picture of him, uh, Joel Brocky picture, sort of shirtless with yeah, a yeah. thin string of beads. And we knew this was it. Yeah. And that went into the Village Voice. And here's a new teen idol. And yeah. we all worked on it from different directions. The record went to number one. Yeah. Super group. And uh, what is called a career single. You yeah. know, what we, in those days. Right. That was like more than just a hit. Right. It was like a hit that made you. Yeah. You know, Mythic. it was such a good hit. Yeah. Such a good song. And uh, yeah. Well, how, what was the tension between you two? Well, okay. I went to see them backstage in San Francisco and, and I thought, oh, such a snot. Mm. I thought, oh, these girls around Jim Morrison, this will never do. Yeah. For my new teenage idol. Yeah. I must do something about this. So, uh, uh, was in L.A. staying at the Tropicana, rest in peace. Yeah. And Nico and Edie Sedgwick were staying at the castle at 2630 Glendower. Do you know what that is? Across the street from the Frank Lloyd Wright house. That's where Rock and Bowl Band stayed. Yeah. And Nico said, oh, we are so afraid here. <laughs> Come and stay with us. So I did. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, Jim, um, why don't you um, come up and visit my friends Nico and Edie Sedgwick, whom yeah. I knew of. You know, there are different versions of this. I saw the movie called The Doors yeah. by Oliver Stone. This, I can only remember what I remember. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so am I looking for witnesses? Do I need them? I don't know. Yeah. I said, follow my car. I'm yeah. going to drive up, uh, you know, and you're so mean. That's when I saw it. It's hard to drive in Los Angeles for a New Yorker to begin with. Yeah. It's hard to drive when you have told Jim Morrison to follow my car into the hills. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. I think he ducked between cars yeah. to confound me. This is going on like sunset towards Vermont. Yeah. Drive, make a left. Oh, my God. And <laughs> it was, I was, oh, it was tormenting. Yeah. He was tor tormenting me for interfering with his girl life, his groupie life. Yeah. By insisting that there I had set him up with Gloria Stavers. There I was working for the record. So I brought him up there, and there were some drugs going around in those days that people had. Yeah. And I think he got really stoned, and he met Nico, and... Mm -hmm. They didn't say a word to each other. They stood and stared at the same place on the floor. Uh huh. Can you imagine for a really long time? Yeah. So we got like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. Can we play solitaire? Yeah. Okay. And um, they had a tumultuous night of fighting and shrieking and tearing of hair and naked walks around the parapets and. Help! He's going to kill me. Yeah, uh, and that was I learned, <laughs> and he hated me from then on. And also, what I did was now look. 
I was working with his record company. They were paying for me to be there. He yeah. was so high. He consumed. Uh, I don't think I'm the first person in the world who said that. Right. He had an astonishing capacity for anything. Yeah. I, that, that the hand and that gesture that says more. Yeah. Okay. Looks at the bottle and consumes more. And what if he got killed driving down fucking Glendower? I'd lose my job. Right. So I took the keys out of his ignition and parked in the driveway, his little car that he lived in. Yeah. And he put them under the floor mat. I didn't steal his car yeah. or anything. Right. This made it kind of difficult yeah. for him to get away <laughs> yeah. in his condition. And there were no phones there. Yeah. Uh, we're lucky there was electricity and running water. <laughs> and so, I, in effect, he was kidnapped. Okay. Um, prevented from leaving until uh, things got better. And, of course, he never forgave me for that. Oh, really? That was it? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's enough, isn't it? I guess hey, so. One you, night, yeah. You, to a store, Jim yeah. Morrison. What, I, I took his... You set him up with Nico and then hid his car keys? Yeah, and oh. it's Los Angeles. You hide someone's car keys? Come on, what is yeah. the... Well, sure, you how, deserve that's it. That's a sin. That's yeah. how, it's bad. That's but that but but the doors you know really got you in tight with the record company. You were you were the guy for a little while. For a little while. So what now? The way that I understand it, what you did for rock and roll outside of uh, you know make teenage girls like Jim Morrison was bring us the MC Five and the Stooges. Yeah, well, you have to do more than one thing at once. It's like you should have more than one job. But that to me is like the greatest story, though. Like this idea that you get a two for one in Detroit or wherever the I hell know you in went. one weekend. Isn't that wonderful? Well, how did you get hip the, to them? What uh, happened? The people who okay, they had played. This is July. It's is '68, and they had played at the. Uh, extremely riotous Democratic convention yeah. in Chicago. Both uh, of them, uh, or just the MC5? The MC5, yeah. Matt, I'm sorry. And well, it, they were the White Panther Party, and there was a lot of political yeah. oh, thing oh, behind them. Yeah, this, but at, at, at first, mm-hmm. I knew of them through Dennis Frohley and Bob Rudnick, uh-huh. who had brought me to WFMU, who had Cocaine Karma, and were politically active. Yeah. Uh, as, of course, we all were politically active right. to our own of individual degrees yeah. and um, so I went out to see the MC5 and f- but first I started to receive the, the, they put me on their list and yeah. I was impressed everything was printed and in color and there was a lot of propaganda and a lot of they had a promotion mission. a mission yeah. that a printing press in the basement that not only had a mission they had a printing press and, hey, and that was what, what's that his was name John Sinclair John Sinclair his, his influence wife, yeah. Lenny Sinclair yeah were uh, conscious of expansive confrontational political. They worshipped the Black Action, Panthers. They yeah. called themselves the White Panthers. Yeah. Okay, and and they had their own band. It was like Andy having a band. Yeah, and we're a political party, and yeah. we need a band. Everyone yeah. needs a band. Right. And well, it was the late sixties too. It was the late sixties, yeah. music uh, meant something. Music meant something, and politics meant something. Uh, it was all, it was, until now, it was the only thing that ever got everybody together was that war. Yeah. That hated, hated, Vietnam, hated yeah. war in Vietnam. And uh, so one participated in all, all, anything that attacked the fact that this country was a part of that. And they certainly were, but they primarily a rock and roll band. Yeah. The people who went to hear them 
went to hear rock and roll and went to see people in satin spinning around yeah. and Wayne Kramer being fabulous and Robin Tyner and yeah. then, then the Prelude brothers and sisters and it's kind of like a prayer meeting. Sonic and Smith. Yes, yeah, Fred Smith, I darn Dennis Thompson. It was great. Raw rock and roll. It was real Midwestern rock and roll. From the tradition of Mitch Ryder. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Grand Trunk Railroad. Yeah, sure. And it was 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 going to become stadium rock in the hands of Grand of Grand Funk Railroad, especially but later was, Bob Seeger. <laughs> it was oh yeah, he was there. Yeah. Ted Nugent would be sitting on the yeah. floor of the you know of the MC five ballroom. Forgive me for saying that. Yeah. Yes. No, on the floor of the garage of the MC five. They would all be hanging out. Oh yeah. We were all hanging out together. And the Stooges too. And the Stooges okay, the Stooges came about because they come about. I mean they existed. Wayne Kramer said to me, Say, if you liked this all on one weekend, September in nineteen sixty eight. Yeah. If you liked us, you're really going to love our little brother band something he knew about my taste was yeah. kind of mm, weird and offbeat and yeah. I don't know how it's Wayne Kramer he's yeah. like, how could he not know smarter things than most of us know and so I said well, well I'd love to see them I have to go back to New York tomorrow he said oh they're playing across the street at the student union of the University of Michigan uh-huh. in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And so I went across the street and then heard, first heard, because I heard them filling the halls of the, uh, this, the oh, building. Oh. Yeah. Then I saw Iggy and then I went, oh. And, <laughs> and the next morning, I, and I said, I said, Iggy walked past me, and I said, well, uh, uh, do you have a manager? I'm from Electra Records. He said, ah, he's back there. And I pointed, he kept walking. Yeah. He said he thought I was some dirty old man who was hitting on. Yeah. Because no one from a record company could sure. possibly. What were you doing there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, being interested in them. So I called Jack Holtzman, the president of Electra, that morning. I said, Jack, I just saw two great bands this weekend. you got to sign them. They were feeling very expansive and expanding. It's more like it in the wake of the Great Doors hits. Yeah. You know, they had become a rock and roll company. Now. They used to be a folk company? They were folk folk rock. Yeah. And, you know, and it was nonsensical. They were classic and inventive and yeah. so, song, songs of Bulgaria. You know, yeah. they were happening. Yeah. You know? And he said, hmm. I said, oh, the big one is MC5, and they draw a lot of people they're really successful and said hmm and I said when well, the little one is kind of starting and they're a little farther out or he said hmm <laughs> and you really like them it's on the phone and the John Sinclair the manager of the MC5 and Jimmy Silver the manager of the Stooges are in the kitchen of the MC5 house in Ann Arbor and Jack said hmm see if the big band will take 20,000 to sign see if the little one will take five yeah I put my hand over the mouthpiece. <laughs> Remember, there were phones there. Yeah. And it's 11 o'clock in the morning on yeah. Monday. Um, when you take 20,000, oh. Yeah. It was, first of all, it was a lot more than it yeah, is. Yeah, sure. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, but they'd never heard. And then 5,000 for the Stooges. And yes, and they were signed, boom. <laughs> and then just, wow. And then it got so hard. Yeah. As the 70s moved yeah. along, you know, doing the legal and financial aspects of a record deal. Yeah. Or, uh, anyhow, I soon got fired. The MC5 got fired. The Stooges got fired. We made a little history there. But you did the first so two records. 
I mean, you, they did. They each did their first record. They each did their first record. The Stooges did their first two records, which which fell on deaf ears for the most part, or no? Well, it didn't fall on massive ears, but it fell on Lenny Stooges, fell on Lenny Kay's ears, for example. <laughs> yeah, who wrote right. an incredible review in I think Fusion. Yeah. So when I said someone said, "Oh, there's that Lenny Kay," said, "Oh, oh, yeah." You're, greatest person who ever lived and that, and, it took, and that had power then you have one good yeah yes, but it wasn't just the one it, it was, was it one. was a few but let's just say lenny k because i didn't know. i didn't get uh, hip to the stooges till years later and it was like you know when you listen to them you realize that if it weren't for them so many things wouldn't have happened yeah but it's you know, then i mean they were so my god they were so unformed yeah and so pure yeah energy it was yeah some, a, a nuclear thing that you can't find you haven't found something with enough lead yeah to hold it in it yeah. was really spot yeah and yeah and i'm glad you think so it just seemed to set the stage for what became the next phase of your you know musical interest yes but not not with a big label right what happened is what always happens there are talented people gathering around a nexus mm-hmm. of it more, it more than a movement it's a place where it is permissible to be creative mm-hmm. and there was such a scene in new york in the wake of the velvet underground and of course the new york dolls were yeah. hugely greatly wonderfully important then in the yeah. early 70s and it is a, a way of being expressive and wonderful and creative and smart and glamorous and good records and good songs, always good songs. You know, like you said, that, you know, the Velvet Underground had set the stage for stuff and, you know, Andy had and the Stooges had come to mm-hmm. New York a couple of times and Bowie had come. Cause yes. I read, yeah. So, like, and there was this crew of, of bands and musicians yes. centered around yeah. the Lower East Side right. that were all doing, you know, unique and interesting stuff, interesting uh, takes right. on rock and roll. It had not much to do. One didn't come because there were there's another, which the implication there would be it sounded like something that was part of something. It did not. Right. Well, it that was sounded, the, that's the good thing. Yes. It, it sounded what these people called the talking, talking heads. Yeah. Well, these people called uh, the New the heart, York Dolls. Or the Heartbreakers. These people called the, the Ramones, Ramones. The Heartbreakers, yes. You said the Heartbreakers. Yeah, and, I said the Heartbreakers. And Blondie yeah. was yeah. having commercial success very unlike what others were doing but it was it became a big sloppy old family television at its heart yeah is cbgb's which is a room that god has blessed with the greatest acoustics that anyone had ever heard yeah anything sounds great there if you're great to begin with you sound cosmic cubed yeah. So okay. when you so when you were there and you were saw you you were you know um, uh, you, you were at a table, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which where where were the tables at Max's and at CB's? And, yeah, tables know. downstairs at Max's. That mm-hmm. was a universe unto itself. Yeah. Upstairs bands played. Yeah. It was a different universe. It right. It was more people who come to hear a band, and downstairs were people who came. To hear and see each other. Well, that and that and at that time, who were who were at the tables like Lou and Patty Smith? Yeah, and, but yeah. I just this morning there was 
I was watching the news, and there was this real star-looking newscaster. And I said to Brandon, Brandon told my director, who I'm in L.A. with, who's that? It's, I think, Shriver. I said, fuck, he's a Kennedy. Wow. It's like a news star. He's yeah. a star. He's the son of Sergeant Shriver. Okay. And this story has a punchline. And Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was a sister of Bobby and Shaffley. And one night, he came into Max's, I think, with Jermaine Greer. Mm -hmm. And I was with Jackie Curtis, who was a trans, such a new neosexual yeah. creation of her very own. He's uh -huh. her very own. And I could say, Ah, Sergeant Shriver, this is Jackie Curtis. Uh -huh. This is the president's, Kennedy's brother-in-law yeah. who started the Peace Corps. Yeah. Okay. And you could do that. That wasn't be a table at Max. Right. Okay. So it, had a, it, it definitely... Uh, I mean, it had Kennedy's. Sure. And it yeah. had... You know, drag queens. It had Jermaine Greer. Yeah. And drag queens. And, and so... Was that in the Warhols, of course. And bands. And, and then be a long table. And it would be... Big Brother and the Holding Company and Janice, you know, yeah, yeah. Max is downstairs. Upstairs, bands played. Well, it's interesting because at that time, in the early 70s, so all these bands from the 60s were still around and there, there was the new thing. So it was that, that, that second wave of, of, of rock mythology all coming together. And then, within, then creating that third wave, which is the the Ramones and that crew. Yeah, but it's, I'm, I'm it's, inventing waves. But you know what I'm saying? Yes, I know. I'm, but communal in yeah. the sense that we came from each other. The members of the band that would become the Ramones would come to New York, to Manhattan from Forest Hills, a simple subway ride, to see the New York Dolls who were getting all this publicity and drawing all these audiences and getting a record deal. Yeah. And it was supposed to be so good. And they said, wow, what are we worried about? They don't, why do we have to worry about being good? Because they're just great. They're not, they went to great without bothering to be good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And we see why they're stars. Look at that guy's hair. Yeah. Look what they're wearing. Look at that audience. That's the coolest kids ever. Listen to that song. So, so okay, so the dolls were the center of it. And then yeah, that the center, and it was the scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The coolest people would go to one place, one night a week, one night a month, and this was all New York. And all, early middle 70s, the Dolls broke up in 74, and CB's started to be a place where the owner said, oh, sure, you can play Hilly? here, but yes, Hilly Crystal, only original material, no copy bands and he was a country western singer yeah. at one point yeah and a very great and wonderful person with a with a room with the best acoustics in the world that anyone ever heard okay and of course bands wanted to play there and then it became a mecca and all that but back then when the, the core bands um it was just it was everyone sounded good and do you know, but apropos of what you said, there were record company people who would say, oh, that neighborhood, the Bowery, yeah. I can't go there. It's not safe. I just told you I could walk there. Sure. From where I live. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you could walk anywhere. But if they said that, you're right. Here is a f fear, yeah. cowardice that's going to keep you back, and it's going to 
those guys, look what they're missing. They could have signed all these bands. Seymour Stein wasn't afraid to go. Yeah. You know, a yeah. lot of people weren't afraid, but a lot of people were. Seymour was sire. Was sire? Yes, sire. And how could tell, yeah, Tom Tom Berlain, yeah, yeah. Of course, which Great. was Richard Hill. I mean, okay. Oh, and Richard Hill, okay. Boyd Oates, yeah, yeah. yeah. Richard Lloyd. I mean, the original television and Billy Ficker. They were, what a great band. They oh, were. my God, oh, yeah. They're great. Yeah. You know, and, and you were just so, there all the time. And so different. Yeah. And there, and the people, yes. And How? you became a voracious fan of great geniuses who were forming their very, very different musical uh, conglomerations. Yeah, and what? And when was the first time you saw the Ramones? The first time I saw the Ramones was in 75 at their annoying insistence and behest and don't leave me alone who's on the phone it's one of them again yeah. they want you to come and see them because I had no idea I had a column there and I wrote a weekly rock and roll column for the Soho Weekly News uh -huh. was kind of an alternative everything was yeah. alternative yeah. Right? and I was writing about television and Patti Smith um, come and see them and the Ramones wanted to be Included, yeah, in those columns, yeah. and they were really after me. I was also the editor of Sixteen magazine. Still, so I mean, I recycled. Oh, now right. I'm back. Oh, okay, I went back yeah. and picked up that part of my life on another level uh -huh. and became the co-editor in chief of it. We were doing the Bay City Rollers then. Sure. So during the day, I was Bay City Rollers, <laughs> and at night, uh, you I were was Patty Smith. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went to see the Ramones. Okay. Oh. Okay, just don't just stop calling. I'll go see them. Yeah, and they were so great. I mean, so ten seconds into the first thing, and I said, "They're perfect. Yeah. They look perfect. Yeah. The songs are perfect. They're loud and fast, and they're strong." Yeah, and the first song I I heard was, "I don't want to go down to the basement," and I thought. That's a song. That's a song. <laughs> what, what a sentiment! What yeah. a lyric beyond comics and and that arch sensibility. I don't want to go down to the basement, and that's a song. Boom! And the whole set was fourteen minutes long, and I thought, "Hooray! This is so good." <laughs> yeah. And I met them afterwards. They said, "So, will you write about us in your column?" And I said. I think I want to manage you guys. But something came over me. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny looked at me. He was so smart. We need $3,000 for drums. Can you come up with $3,000? Then we'll maybe we can be our manager. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I, I flew to Florida to see my widowed mother and said, Ma, I need $3,000. <laughs> they just saw the best band I ever saw. So, Thanks to my mother, you, uh, my mom's you, got there. So that's, that's a lot of money for a set of drums in 1970. I don't know. $3,000. I don't either. It seems like a lot. But who cares? Yeah. And we were off and running. Yeah. That's great. And how long were you with him? Five years. It was a contract. Yeah. And, and you hooked him up with Sire? Or who did it first? Stiff? They were kind of known to Sire. And then my best friend had become Linda Stein, who was married to Seymour Stein. Uh, well, from Sire. Sire. Yeah. And so I brought her to see them. Yeah. And she a real rock and roll person, a uh -huh. real rock and roll gal. Seymour yeah. knew it. We all knew it. And she's raving about this. So we did 
and audition for Seymour Stein, and he signed them on the spot. I want to audition. That's all it took. And, and, and first album for $6,400. Okay, and the rest is history. You know, as I'm finding out, as I keep going back to London now, it's the 40th anniversary of that happening. Yeah. Going to England, and, and it meant so much to people. They did yeah. something, they changed a great deal. Uh, I think even 40 years is not long enough to know what it was they did. They changed the music. They changed the music. They changed so much. Them and the Heartbreakers, too. The Heartbreakers tour to London, I heard, was a powerful yes, shift. it was, but I wasn't there for that, so you'll have to have I'm Johnny Thunders in. Yes. Sure, we'll get a Ouija board and Johnny, get him right so down. so wonderful. But yeah, so when the Ramones went to England, it was like, what the, this is it. Yeah, and, and, and they did something that was commercially very significant. Many bands were forming then. It was kind of a, what do you say, a plasma yeah. of extremely gifted people in this stew in yeah. London. And they had their own concerns and they had their own politics and they were very strong and the people were very strong and powerful and talented but no one would hire them. And then these four people from New York came for three days. Yeah. And there was such a word of mouth sensation. I think New York had an exotic, oh, it's an interesting place. It's full of poets and it's very sexy. This yeah. is London saying that. But we can't get jobs because... Were you talking about like The Clash? Yeah, yeah. especially The Clash. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the Ramones played and thousands of people came to see them on July 4th, 1976, 200 years yeah. from, ironically, yeah. the Revolution War that America get us out of this yeah. Eng England thing. And here we are back in England and beginning what, uh, in retrospect, turns out to have been a revolutionary period. And yeah. one of the things that would make this kind of music, if one would call it that sort of do-it-yourself music, um, became commercially viable. People said, oh, they, you know, one of these bands can play yeah. at my club, or sure. oh, we can have a little festival sure. in Leeds or something. Yeah. And that can be seen as a watershed moment. I mean, also, Grant, it was the Pistols, of course, sure. and their greatness, of yeah. course. But it, like, let's call it a one-two punch. I don't want to yeah. uh, get into like you know where did it belong. Or, sure, sure. Well, that that's that that you changed it. You you helped. Uh, you facilitated the big shift. Yeah, but you didn't know you were doing it then because I went back this past summer, yeah. 2016. Yeah, I actually spoke at the British Library. Uh huh. You know, and and um, uh, was interviewed by Barney Hoskins, who was so brilliant, who does rocks back rock back pages, uh -huh. which you must should know about, and well, everybody, and in front of an audience and we have the British libraries is the it's like the libraries of the great libraries yeah, of the world right. wanting to talk about 40 years ago in London and the more you talked about it, the more I talked about it the more I asked about it the more perspective I was adding to it but this is great like most of a lifetime had gone and it just shows you know, sort of have to, sometimes you have to get so far from something to look and see what it was and what happened. Those people said to me, oh, what was London like when you got there? I don't know. <laughs> we got there, we were there for three days. And what happened after you left? I don't know. People tell me. I have to ask. 
what happened mm-hmm. in in the wake of this ignition yeah. okay yeah. That, that the Ramones sparked in in London and so they made history and they changed the world and after five years they fired me yeah. because they weren't selling records and they kind of knew they weren't going to sell records but they were millionaires at the times so they were all gone they did alright they did quite well yeah, I remember one time uh, I saw Joey and his father eating soup at Veselka, you know, like face to face at a two at a two top table. Yeah, and I just saw the profiles. It was so cute. You knew that was his real biological father. It looked just like him. Wow. Yeah. Maybe it was you. Yeah. Well, I don't. Didn't he hang out with his father ever? I think I met him in passing. Oh. His mother was a great friend of everyone. She was very wonderful. Oh, maybe I'm okay. projecting. Maybe it, it yeah, could, it could it have, been have you. been you. Did you ever have soup with uh, Joey at the Veselka? Uh, Joey, I, I was kind of shy of Joey. He was so smart and sarcastic and shrewd, and I was kind of afraid of being left alone with Joey. But uh-huh. Johnny and Dee Dee and Tommy, no problem. Oh, yeah. But Joey was <laughs> ethereal uh-huh. and so smart. Um and here's the irony. So they li- they lived for, they changed the world. Now there's a book, there's a fiction book called Ramon Ramon, as if as if they had been brothers, as if they were oh, a you love that family. Book. Yeah, which I'm giving you a copy. Of, yeah, I'm excited. You. It's unbelievably brilliant. This is the conceit that they really were a family of brothers, and that there was an oldest brother who was a classical composer and the Ramones stole his great innovative symphonies <laughs> yeah. and Avid made their historic first four albums which we are so also proud of yeah and, and also you got to get me the uh, photo book and I'll get you the photo book and you got to read Damone Ramon is not published I mean can I say the word Amazon you have, yeah I mean sure. it's 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 like nothing and here's the uh, it's a book. It's yeah. a book of words. It's not a song. It's not a haircut. It's not leather. Yeah. It doesn't. It's just a book that it lies there, and the words come and just you, strike you. Oh, oh my I'm, God. I'm, I'm in. I'm sold. I'm exploding. Yeah, I'm excited okay. about it. Damon Ramon. That's his name. They were drug smugglers in the book I'm first made on their ship called the Havana Banana. <laughs> Was smuggling drugs between Rockaway Beach and the coast of South America. Oh, that sounds funny. I know. It's very funny and wonderful. Do you listen to any music? Beethoven. Okay. He was good. (laughs) I can't say he said it all, but he said more than I will ever be able to comprehend in this lifetime. I would say that without sounding pretentious, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you for talking. Thank you. This was funny. Okay, that's it. We did it. We pulled through. We got it. Find your key. I can't play guitar right now because my fingers hurt because I played a bunch yesterday. Like, and I was playing acoustic and the tips of my fingers actually hurt. I know that a lot of you just are disappointed and you're like, hey, man, that's you got to push through. Next time. Next time. I have to go, you know, try to exercise so I don't die. All right. Boomer lives! <laughs>